Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Welcome to the third in a series of conversations on citizenship in a networked age, occasioned by a new report from Oxford University and Templeton World Charity Foundation. I'm Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. In our previous episode, I was joined by David Brooks, Christine Rosen, and Yuval Levin for discussion of community, platform, and institution. That last point, institution, calls to mind the role of both governmental and private institutions to make decisions affecting all of us. And that, in turn, points to another chapter in the Oxford report that I wanted to discuss. It's chapter on algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. And so I'm pleased to be joined today by three more friends who are particularly well-suited to discuss the report. Kerry Kalanisi, Malika Momond, and Ari Shulman. But before I introduce them, just one more note. But for COVID-19, this discussion would have been an in-person event at AEI's headquarters in Washington. Of course, that's not possible during the COVID-19 outbreak, so we pivoted to setting it up as a podcast instead. But we don't want to lose the benefit of audience questions and comments. So if this conversation spurs any thoughts of your own, please don't hesitate to send them to me by email. My email address is adam.white at aei.org. I'll remind you at the end of this discussion. Now, back to my guests. Kerry Colonisi is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Penn Program on Regulation. He's a leading scholar on artificial intelligence, administration, and democratic legitimacy. Some of his recent papers include Optimizing Regulation for an Optimizing Economy and Regulation by Robot, Administrative Decision-Making in the Machine Learning Era, and most recently, Transparency and Algorithmic Governance. We're also joined by Malika Momond. She's CEO and co-founder of Esper, a company that creates cutting-edge technological tools for governments to make policymaking more efficient, effective, and accountable. Previously, she was president of Argive, a nonprofit that collaborated with states on major regulatory reforms. Recently, Esper launched Esper Discovery, a new regulatory tracking tool that you should look up. And finally, Ari Shulman is editor of The New Atlantis, a great, interesting journal on technology, policy, and society. Now, I'm on the masthead. I'm a contributing editor, so I'm biased, but I still think I'm right. It's a great journal. And under his leadership, The New Atlantis has become the home to some really fascinating essays on many of the issues raised in Oxford's report. And in his own, his own writing, Ari's become a leading voice on issues of the dissemination of information related to mass shootings and the impact that that has on society. Now, we'll have much to discuss in this conversation, but I want to begin with a very broad question. The report frames this discussion in terms of a dichotomy, algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. And so to begin, I'm curious to hear what my guests have to say about that basic framing of the issue, algorithmic versus democratic decision-making. Is that the right way to look at this? Kerry? Sure, Adam. I think it's an interesting dichotomy, a dichotomy that tracks one that in this debate really is a debate between humans versus machines. Because actually, 
at one level, there isn't really a difference between algorithmic decision-making and democratic decision-making in the sense that democratic decision-making is algorithmic. One can think of the U.S. Constitution, in a sense, as an algorithm for governance in the United States. We lay out how decisions will be made. We have rules for them. We have two houses of Congress, a, a president that has to sign it, rules about when vetoes can be overridden and so forth. Anytime we have the rule of law and we have algorithms, we have procedures and so forth that are conducted in the governmental process. Those are algorithmic too at a certain level. The difference really is, are we going to be governed by human algorithms, human-driven algorithms, or by digital algorithms? Now, even that, to, to point it that way, it breaks down even a little bit further because even the digital algorithms are not really exclusively computer-created. They are created also by humans, structured in a certain ways and have certain values and goals that they're designed to be addressed. So uh, anyway, I do think that it, it, it's important to get clarity, first of all, about what we really are debating. Usually it's coming down to it, I think, do we want to allow decisions, say in particular uh, uh, administrative or judicial contexts, to be decided by human judges or by systems that, that are run by computers. I should say also, by the way, that the humans, even when humans are deciding something on their own, the way our brains work uh, might be thought of as algorithmic. In fact, a, you know, a good bit of artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms are modeled on the way the human brain is structured. And there's a lot of differences, of course, between different conceptions of democracy and different conceptions of algorithms, too. Uh, <laughs> I applaud you for asking the right question, and I have probably done more to complicate it than to actually bring clarity to it. But you asked me to lead off, and I thought that might be useful to lay out, that these, these are not really hard and fast absolute differences, really. It's just really a difference in the, in the modes of decision-making and the design and rules of the systems that are being used. Well, that was very interesting. Malika, what do you make of this distinction that the authors propose? I think Carrie's point about the U.S. Constitution being a set of rules that could plug into an algorithm is very well taken. From a technologist's perspective, you know, algorithms are really a series of if-then statements. If this scenario, then X, Y, Z. And you sort of tell the model that. And then you aggregate and collect data to feed into that model that eventually puts out like an output, right? Here's the range of decisions given the if-then statements. That said, one of the biggest gripes, if you will, that I hear from software engineers and folks that work on the front lines of algorithms and AI is that data sets often aren't big enough or organized enough to really make best use of AI. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of tension right now and debate over how automated algorithms can become in making decisions for us. And in some instances, they have a lot of data and they're able to perform well. Like think about Alexa or Siri, the voice activated apps on our, you know, technology devices. But when it comes to, you know, policy decision-making, or, or government decision-making, oftentimes the data sets that we're working with are not well-organized. 
if there at all. So that is the question of, you know, if we were able to truly make decisions via algorithms, I'm not confident that at this point in time, we would have enough data to best utilize um, AI or, or technology like that. I think what's more realistic is putting together algorithms of some sort that will provide a range of options, but there will always be a human end user making the decision on which way to go given the options presented. Algorithms can do a good job of organizing information and presenting options in different ways given the if-then scenarios, but ultimately the human will have best context along with the available data to make the call. Your mention of, of the, the challenge of, of, of the use of data in this context reminds me of a piece that Ari published not long ago called Why the Data is Never Raw. One of these articles I mentioned in my, my introduction um, that, that, that really exemplifies what the New Atlantis is working on these days. Ari, what's your reaction to just the initial framework of, of, this, of this chapter, the, the dichotomy between algorithmic and democratic decision making? This is a really interesting discussion. I'd like to maybe try to synthesize the, the two comments that we've gotten so far. I think that the contrast between algorithmic decision-making and democratic decision-making is, uh, I don't know if it's a very real one, but I think it's a fruitful one. It's instructive for thinking about the way that we structure these kinds of conversations, because what it seems to be talking about is a distinction between decisions that humans make and decisions that humans don't make. I think as we've already heard, that's a somewhat questionable distinction. On the one hand, humans can make decisions in an algorithmic way. Uh, the earliest use of the term computers was actually for people who were uh, executing calculations. They would have labs full of people who were called computers before there were mechanical computers. That's where the original term comes from. And then on the other hand, we have this idea that um, you know, what's called algorithms when computers do them are being done somehow free of or independent of acts of human judgment, uh, when in fact there is always uh, some sort of human decision-making that's involved in the process, as that piece that you just mentioned pointed out, why data is, is never raw. You can have a computer that executes analysis on data in a seemingly neutral way, but there's always going to be a lot of decision-making and, and judgments and decisions on how the data was crafted and harvested and collected that people made. So I think that what what the algorithmic versus democratic distinction seems to be getting at is not whether humans are involved in the loop, but how remote they are from an actual act of decision-making, right? When you have a criminal sentencing algorithm that's issuing a decision, that's actually aggregating and very, very heavily based on a lot of human decisions that have been made over many years. But in the actual moment that it's being made, there are no brains churning that idea. It's It's a computer that's basing its decision off of the decisions of people. And I think that the kinds of promises and the kinds of problems that this chapter raises all seem to have to do with this axis, right? The, the promise of sentencing algorithms and of these other algorithms is that they will remove the problems of human decision-making, the unfairness, the bias, and so forth from these processes. And then the problems are, are raised by the same axis, which is, you know, are these decisions legitimate? Is somebody accountable for them? Do they seem humane because somebody is actually making them? So I think that that's the axis that this report seems to be getting at. And, and I think it's a somewhat problematic one because it does remove the question of how algorithms are actually written. And likewise, the, the institutional factors and the process factors that can be at play in the way that people make their decisions. Okay. 
Yeah, listening to the three of you sort of outline all that, it occurs to me that, that you're right. There's, there are people involved in both kinds of decision-making. The difference is just who and when. Algorithmic decision-making, the decisions are made very early on in, in writing the algorithm. And, and the who, the decisions are made by the people who, who write the code versus individual decision makers at the end of a process. Now, I guess, I suppose it gets more complicated if, if machine learning improves to the, the point where algorithms write algorithms. I don't know, maybe we already are at that point. Malika, you'd know maybe better than, than any of us. But there's still, even if algorithms are writing algorithms, there is still that initial human judgment much earlier at a high level of generality. And I like Carrie equating it or analogizing it to the constitution as an algorithm because the when question of when judgments are made that for a, an administrative law um, scholar like me or like Carrie, it reminds me of the, of the dichotomy between say a constitution and a statute or a statute and an individual adjudication. A statute in a way is, is, is an algorithm of a sort um, written by the coders or our legislators. They write a broad rule that then is executed later by somebody with a varying degree of discretion left at the end. With all that in mind, sort of conceding up front that it's not a hard and fast dichotomy, but rather it's, it's two general-ish categories that we can sort of think about. I do want to start by thinking about the benefits of algorithmic decision-making, um, especially in policy-making, um, because this report raises a number of concerns, but there has been a lot of gains uh, in terms of, of efficiency and even in some ways, uh, democratic legitimacy in algorithmic decision-making. And Malik, I want to turn to you because in your work at Argive and, and now at Esper, you've really been at the front lines of trying to find ways to, to use technology to improve democratic accountability and efficiency inside of government. So I'm curious if maybe you could just talk a little bit about your work and what you've learned and seen through that work in terms of the benefits of applying technology to rulemaking. Absolutely. For a bit of context, I, I started Esper in, in 2018 after working in Silicon Valley in venture capital and nonprofit, being exposed to a lot of companies that were facing barriers to entry from regulation and needed help navigating it. And so we were rolling up our sleeves and trying to dig into regulation across different levels of government. And we realized it was pretty messy, um, given that there's, you know, overlapping, sometimes conflicting, sometimes duplicative regulation across different jurisdictions. And that makes it very difficult for the business owner to, to figure out which way is north. To solve that, we wanted to go to government and help create processes internally in software that would drive better decision-making, but also better data and help you know, different governments achieve their policy goals. One of the biggest things that I, I was just thinking about as you were speaking to the importance of you know, policymaking in this application is our tool, we built something that I, a lot of regulators um, have found very, very useful, which is if you wanna look up a regulation, a nurse practitioner regulation in Tennessee and find that equivalent regulation in like five other states, maybe the neighboring states of Tennessee, it would probably be like an hour long process. Now, why would you want to look up um, a similar regulation in neighboring states? Maybe it's to become regionally competitive to attract more nurse practitioners to your state. Maybe it's for reciprocity. 
you want to allow for nurses to come in from other states and, and serve rural communities in your state. There are like many different reasons. Um, but right now, the access to that data, which I will probably be a theme of my talk today, is like data and the importance of it. The access to that data is really dispersed across the internet or even file cabinets in some cases. So we've built algorithms where if you're looking at a nurse practitioner regulation in Tennessee, you can easily find that equivalent policy in different states. And so we've taken some of like the manual work out of finding that policy, the equivalent of it. And we've also done comparisons for you. So you can see the difference in licensing requirements for that nurse practitioner in Tennessee and Ohio. You can see the similarities. Uh, you can see the differences in, you know, fees, um, hours, all of that. And so what we've done is surfaced a lot of data to the regulator, to the government, the subject matter expert but it's really up to them how they want to take it. Do they want to make the policy more competitive, less competitive, as competitive as the other state? That's really um, a decision in their hands. And we leave that discretion to them, but we're taking some of the initial analysis out of their hands and, and making it easier to compare um, more apples to apples rather than apples to oranges. The tools like that, analyze the administrative codes, seeing the differences between you know, a solar energy policy at the federal level and the equivalent policy at the state level has helped streamline a lot of policies in many of the governments that we work with and ensuring sort of consistency across jurisdictions. We help a lot with the data analysis and workflow piece, but ultimately the decisions are always in our users' hands. And that's a, you know, that's a product and a company decision we made at the onset when we started Esper. No, one thing I've I've really learned in being around folks from Silicon Valley um, in the last few years is while I think about these you know, regulatory and administrative issues from the perspective of a you know, East Coast law professor, out West um, in Silicon Valley, sometimes their view of, of regulatory reform is just totally orthogonal to the way I, I thought about it as a matter of law and policy. And, and Malika, our conversations over the years have really informed that too, the way that you and your team broke down, you know, what it is the government's trying to do, how can it be improved from both an efficiency and a um, uh, and a transparency standpoint, you're working in, in you know with government, but it's with government for the sake of of the all the private industry and and other individuals who have to comply with these rules, right? Improving the work of government helps to improve the lives of the people the government uh, regulates or or protects. Carrie, right. I'd like to turn to you, Carrie, for just a moment, um, because in your recent writings, especially in your latest paper on optimizing regulation for an optimizing economy. You point out that one of the reasons why um, government needs to become better at using technology in its own work is that it's regulating and, and relating to private actors, whether it's companies or, or others, who are themselves highly uh, technological. Um, and for government to really both regulate and, and you know, learn from and work with a private sector that's algorithm-driven, uh, the government needs to keep up. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I'll just connect a little bit with uh, what Malika was talking about, because about 15 years ago or so, I was involved with an early stage project that has grown into what is now called regulations.gov at the federal level, where agencies in their rulemaking process have digitized documents and, and digitized the public comment process by and large. And that it's another aspect of algorithms here is to think just about digital tools in general, about technology overall, 
uh, and how much easier it is now for citizens to understand uh, what their government is doing, for them to get access to information that the government possesses, to be able to participate in the government rulemaking process. Uh, all of that is much easier today thanks to computers and to digital tools, and I think that's important to highlight. And I think it connects with the point that I make in the article Optimizing Regulation for an Optimizing Economy, in that there are public expectations about governmental performance that are affected by the kinds of technological advances that we see in the private sector. And I think something like regulations.gov, something like the tools that Malika is talking about, are emblematic of what government needs to uh, do to kind of keep pace with and the public expectations in these areas. I think it would just be totally unacceptable today for any state government not to have a website, not to have its rules <laughs> online. You know, I think there's still many miles to go and how easy it is to access that sort of information. But part of the reason why governments have invested in those, maybe what, what might be thought of as first generation digital technology tools, just getting things up online and so forth, uh, has been because this is now where everybody has migrated in, in their personal and social interactions and their interactions in the private sector and how they buy things. And I think the same thing will be said with, uh, you know, the further generation developments with uh, digital tools in the form of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, algorithms. So, uh, you know, we now expect to be able to have efficient search when we go online and are looking in our private capacity. So we should have those same kind of search uh, tools, certainly in uh, the public sector. Uh, we expect things to be happening faster. And quite frankly, the private sector itself is moving faster. And so for the government to keep up with it, to regulate effectively in an increasingly digital economy, the, the government has to be able to match those same kind of tools and capacities that the private sector has. And I think there's a great deal of promise and research showing that uh, government agencies are increasingly deploying artificial intelligence tools to good end. Uh, there's some uh, work that's being done at government agencies like the IRS to use machine learning tools to identify tax fraud at the Securities and Exchange Commission, again, for fraud identification. Uh, but uh, agencies as uh, diverse as the Social Security Administration are trying to use machine learning tools to increase the efficiency and accuracy of, 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 of disability adjudications. And the Environmental Protection Agency has done some research on using machine learning to identify which chemicals are likely to be toxic and need to be regulated. These are all, I think, important advances and, 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 and examples of where government needs to be investing even further because we are entering a digital economy and because public expectations, I think, for improved performance. Improved performance, by the way, often without a lot of increase in available resources either, right? We are in a time of relative government austerity. I, I think that's a prevailing set of principles. And uh, governments need to learn how to do more often uh, with less or with the same amount. And, and that's why 
these algorithmic tools can make government much more efficient and effective at what they do. Uh, you mentioned, Carrie, a moment ago, the, the reforms. I think you mentioned the Social Security Administration. Um, there have been a few federal programs in Washington, the biggest ones, that really have turned towards modernization just to serve communities so large as the one it's tasked with serving. Social Security Administration is one. Uh, the, the Department of Veterans Affairs is another that's now turning and really having learned from what Social Security did, you know, turning to, to find ways to rely upon um, algorithmic decision making. Uh, and 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 data to to improve the swiftness with which it can process um, claims. And of course, these approaches aren't perfect, but they're a lot faster than case by case service under the old way of doing things. And to the extent that somebody gets service at all faster than they would have in the past, um, imperfect justice might be an improvement upon, upon no justice at all. Uh, yeah, can same, I just yeah, inter- please, go ahead, interject? Go ahead. Uh, though, of course. Uh, with, because I think uh, I, I just wanted to, I, I exactly agree with you about the speed, right? This is a, a, a clear advantage that digital tools can have. But I would not want to necessarily say that the digital tools are necessarily imperfect relative to human decision making, right? Uh, one thing we know about hu- human adjudicators is that they can be wildly inconsistent and so that's another advantage, actually, for the use of algorithmic tools in the administrative adjudicatory process that you might get not only speed, but also consistency. That's a great point and well taken. I was just listening to an interview with somebody yesterday who was explaining how, how even medical diagnoses are now being improved by technology where even some of the best, best doctors can be sort of outperformed by smartphone apps or others in scanning, you know, say a mole on your shoulder to decide whether or not it's cancerous or not. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that it, one thing that is, you know, lacking in a a move to more algorithmic decision-making, whether it's an adjudication of individual cases or the rulemaking process that you mentioned earlier, Carrie, the, your work with regulation.gov, making it much, much easier for people to participate in these processes. And that's all beneficial, but at the same time, to the extent that it removes face-to-face human decision-making, is there a loss in terms of other democratic values, whether they're, whether they call them dignity values or participatory values or others, just that difference between having a decision made face-to-face with somebody who is interacting with you as a person versus decisions that are made between you and the decision maker intermediated by the algorithm. I wonder what's lost in that. And, and Ari, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if it's the, the face-to-face element so much as knowing that there is a particular person who made the decision and who is accountable for it and who can offer you some account of it and explanation of it. You know, most of the examples that uh, Carrie and Malika were just talking about, most of those didn't strike me as examples where there was a real decision-making going on, right? The discovery of similar statutes uh, for a regulation that function is, is mostly computer-aided analysis and uh, data discovery. Now, that's going to aid somebody making a decision-making process, but the computer itself isn't doing what I think most people would call making a decision, which is something that involves credential judgments about weighing different value considerations. The report talks about value and commensurability. I think those are particularly the situations where judgment comes into play. And I think that the worry is that you have a process, particularly in the justice system, you have processes where you have a particular person who has to weigh different incommensurable value considerations, right? So think about when, you're, when you have a judge deciding 
on whether somebody is going to be sent to prison or, or often a, offered a diversion program or how long of a prison sentence they're going to get. They're weighing things like what is this person's likelihood of recidivating? What are their priors? What is the kind of substance of the injury? Society owed some kind of compensation for that. Those are incommensurable values. They're all, they're all of a piece together. But what you have is a long history of people making these decisions in very imperfect and indeed wildly inconsistent ways. And then you try to take that body of decisions and put them into a process that's going to be more consistent. But in making it consistent, you lose the question of accountability and of who is making this decision. And I think what you lose there is a sense of legitimacy. Fairness doesn't just involve a process or a set of criterion being applied in the same way to the same set of people, but a person actually applying that. An act of the justice system is an act by the people against an individual who has committed some sort of crime. And when you turn the decision over to an algorithm, even if it's just a criminal sentencing algorithm that's issuing a recommendation and a judge who's putting a check mark by that, you lose that element. And there becomes a sense of, you know, if the algorithm is doing something unfair, right? One of the investigations that we published found that criminal sentencing algorithms do not, in fact, resolve problems with disparate impact on racial minorities of criminal sentencing codes. So when you have human judges who are making that decision, you can attribute that problem to perhaps bias among the judges. Once you've turned that over to an algorithm, where does that problem lie, right? Is that, is that a problem with the programmers? Is that a problem with the data that they're getting, uh, which itself reflects uh, inequalities among society? Um, I don't want to downplay the advantages of uh, adding in that consistency, but I think that the, the algorithmic mode of making these kinds of decisions that involve justice prioritizes consistency above all else. Uh, and you get these situations where there is still a sense of unfairness, but now you don't even know who exactly to attribute that to and who to make answerable for it. Ari has talked about some really important concerns uh, that in, in any algorithmic system that government uses, I think we need to be thinking through and be very careful about. I also, though, think that there is a kind of legitimacy that comes from the performance of government itself. If veterans are waiting two and a half years for an appeal of benefits, that strikes me as uh, something that can really undermine legitimacy. To and, and I think we do see those kinds of delays, for example, in decisions in government right now. And you know, we we see uh, a nation struggling with a pandemic right now. And one of the well-regarded, I think, principles is that we were very slow to act. So slowness itself can be a type of illegitimacy or lead to some some illegitimacy too. So I don't, I don't, you know, discount at all the kinds of concerns about not having a human involved. There's, there are challenges about understanding always exactly how a machine learning algorithm might reach an outcome that it, that reaches. These are all very real concerns to be sure, but I don't think we should paint too rosy a picture of the status quo either and where algorithms can be deployed and be shown to improve the performance and the consistency of decision making without, uh, you know, de de leading to unfairness uh, or, or even embedding in fairness, uh, I think we should, we should certainly be open to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very important consideration. What I would say is, you know, there are surely some applications where the, the lack of performance and the delay in simply making a decision at all, I mean, that, that obviously is a matter of justice. And I think that there are some applications where I would consider it legitimate to, to use an algorithm to apply that simply to get a faster decision. 
But those would be ones where there are not matters of justice involved or of adjudicating clashes between different values. It's hard to think of too many governmental decision-making processes where that would be involved. The point that I was kind of trying to get at in my opening to your original question was, I think that there's a mistake in a lot of these processes where the, the process is both slow and unfair. And so we try to target that by creating a machine that can adjudicate both of those things better, that can do it both faster and at least as fairly, if not more fair. But we're missing the element in which the, the decision-making by the humans is degraded and problematic to begin with, right? And we need to recognize that humans are also capable of making decisions in more or less algorithmic ways and more or less rational ways. And a lot of the ways that we structure the justice system are designed to create kind of contexts in which judges, for example, are making more highly structured decisions that are aimed both at increasing fairness and accountability. And so when we have these situations where decisions are getting delayed by several years, that may be a case where we need to look at that and, and ask if it's the process itself that is misguided, right? If it's not just a lack of computing power, but something that is fundamentally malformed in the process that is creating both delayed and unfair decisions. I realize that's a very broad and perhaps starry-eyed mandate. Well, no, it makes me think that, you know, as Kerry mentioned at the beginning of his point a few moments ago, that you know, we live in, in an era of, of too often government austerity where agencies aren't given sufficient resources to accomplish the tasks they've been asked to do. Increasing prevalence of algorithmic decision-making at the busiest agencies might in turn be, come to be seen as the justification for government to give those agencies uh, even less resources. Maybe there are some cases where we could make a, wave a magic wand and uh, instead of replacing, say, decision makers at the VA with, with algorithms, but, but just tripling or quadrupling the number of decision makers, uh, then you'd have more decisions made more quickly in a different way. Now, they may, they may not be, the decisions might not be as good as the ones the best algorithms can make, as, as Carrie pointed out. But in any event, the more efficient government is able to be made through algorithmic decision making, the still more efficient other parts of the government may force the government to be made. Malika, did you, uh, do you have anything you'd like to jump in with here? Well, it's funny. I was just thinking to a conversation I had this morning with a potential client that won't be named. And they asked, you know, how many hours of work does Esper's product save? You know, and, and really what they were getting at is like, how many like full-time employees is this worth? And we were very careful to point out in that conversation, like, we, we designed Esper so that regulators can focus their time on more substantive work rather than the manual type of data collection, data research. So that's just like a funny anecdote because you're right. I think if, if given the opportunity, austere governments will, will likely use technology as a way to justify even less allocation of resources. Another point here, as Carrie and Ari were talking about, you know, decision-making human versus algorithmic and there, there's fallibility in human decision-making and there's fallibility in algorithmic decision-making, but in different ways and ultimately who's accountable for it. And I'm thinking like it's very easy to trigger game or hack an algorithm. And it's also easy for human decision-making to be bought or biased internally or explicitly. And really what I'm beginning to think about is like a framework or a matrix for decision-making where, you know, maybe there is some level of algorithm involved, but there's, you know, checks and balances on it, just as there are checks and balances in the justice system to ensure that, you know, our adjudicators are as impartial as possible. I think one of the checks and balances we need is really 
a robust evaluation of these new algorithmic systems. I mean, to the extent that they are going to keep humans out of the loop, well, we ought to really know that they do better than humans. And so they do need to be followed. And I think that's something that historically governments have have underinvested in. Uh, certainly we're seeing a greater appreciation today, at least with some of the you know, evidence-based policy making act, for example, that, that we, we really should be doing more evaluation of programs. But I think it will be really important if we are going to take humans out of the loop to make sure we know that we really are getting something that's better and, and that we know what kind of errors there might be. And there might be ways in which we should structure systems so that there's checks and balances with humans in the loop being able to override systems. The, the, the challenge, of course, is that you want humans to find the errors that the algorithm would make, but the humans wouldn't make, and not simply introduce back in the human errors into a system that's now algorithmically driven, but but it capable of being overridden by humans. We've been looking at the the decision maker throughout the last part of this discussion, but let's think a little bit about the, the people who are the subject of the decision. One of the things that the Oxford report focuses on is the the difference between citizens and, and customers, and the idea that that one sort of current trend or tendency in the development of of applications and other things is gamification, um, ways in which you can encourage somebody to provide certain information or undertake a certain course of conduct by offering prizes and other things. And as as the the report says, these are really secondary with respect to what the the developer is really trying to accomplish, but they become primary in the way that it's presented to the person that's interacting with with the algorithm and. I'd say just more generally, and again, this gets back to the question about what is this doing to a democratic people, to the extent to which more and more government decisions are made algorithmically, quickly, with the interests of of fast response time to people, is there a risk that people will start to see these things in more of a customer relationship than a, a citizen and governed relationship, which might in turn affect in general, our perceptions of what we expect out of government in terms of the services it provides um, and the ways in which it's it's held accountable. Well, I think that's a great question, Adam. And there's a couple of dimensions to it. One is, can we? And this is a point I think that that Ari was was making as well: is can we make sure that we still preserve it. I mean, I say still preserve uh, human empathy, because I'm not sure even with our human bureaucratic systems, there's a tremendous amount of empathy often that that people uh, get. Uh, You know, there's been a tremendous movement in public administration over the past several decades about focusing on customer service, just because people, in some sense, in their interactions with retail sales in, in the in private stores get a better better treatment than they do when they go to their department of motor vehicles to try to get their license renewed so there is an aspect in which government might do better to show empathy by treating <laughs> citizens as customers we've known that for a while but i think that's something first of all to uh, to make sure that we can preserve or maintain or even improve on in an algorithmic setting that we won't lose that opportunity to, to 
to engage with a, a human and, and be treated with some empathy. The second aspect of what you've talked about, I think, is, is a, deals with an explanation. And machine learning algorithms in particular are called black box algorithms because it's not very intuitive exactly how they achieve the outcomes that they achieve. Now, I've written a whole paper on this called Transparency and Algorithmic Governance, and I think that the kind of reasons that we tolerate right now for complex decision-making by government authorities, even in the absence of these black box machine learning algorithms, tolerates an awful lot of, of obscurity to government decision-making. And I think that, that our current legal doctrines about reason-giving uh, would actually accommodate the black box algorithms. In other words, I don't think there's anything intrinsically unlawful about going ahead and making decisions based upon machine learning algorithms. But I do think from a matter of sort of good public policy, from good governance standpoint, part of the empathy is to be able to offer some kind of explanation. Now, I think the technologists and computer scientists are doing a better job of trying to get transparency and explainability to algorithms. So I think that that is an area where they will improve and people will find that they can get a better handle of why their case was decided the way it was decided, even in an algorithmic setting. So those empathy and explanation are important dimensions going forward if, if we're going to rely on algorithms increasingly in the governmental context. There's a trust factor involved there, right? If it's, you mentioned the black box and it calls to mind uh, the book from a few years ago by Frank Pasquale, Black Box Society, right? The role of algorithms and focusing on their secrecy. The process works to the extent to which the people are willing to trust that what's in the box is valid, is, is, that it's legitimate. But as the, in the Oxford report, they raise a question that, that too much, this is another problem with algorithmic decision making, is that it requires a, a certain amount of, of deference from the the people towards the decision makers. And of course, that's always involved. Uh, you know, the, if, if I'm touched by a complex federal program, say a, someone wants to build a, a pipeline through my field, I'm not going to be an expert in all of the issues that, are, that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission grapples with. I have to, at some point, sort of concede a certain amount of expertise to the decision maker. But in general, I think what the report's worried about is that to the extent that more and more decisions are made through algorithmic decision-making, um, the more deference it's required of the people, or at least the more opportunity the people have to become less rigorous in their own thinking about what's happening and to sort of mentally concede vast arenas of responsibility to experts who they haven't met. And, and for the, in this report, that, that they frame that as, as a, a cause for concern. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I'd, I'd like to draw also on what Carrie said about explainability. I think it's important to offer a distinction between explainability and accountability. You know, if you look to the very early days of artificial intelligence, the way that those programs are structured at the time were very, very explainable. They were trying to basically imitate high-level philosophical reasoning. And AI has come away from that towards what we have now, which is machine learning that, you know, that even the programmers can't really offer an account of how it is that it arrives at its decision. But I don't know that we would necessarily be in much better position if we were to, to go back in that direction or to, to be able to produce a clearer set of rationales for how the machine produces its decision. And I think if you want an example of that, you can look at what's going on in uh, speech regulation on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook right now. There's been this problem with Twitter and Facebook for years of 
bad toxic speech, hate speech, all sorts of things that people think are degrading democracy and make the, the platforms very unpleasant to use. And this goes all the way up to the, to the top, right? They're dealing with this right now with our, uh, our president. And I think that the way that the platforms have responded to this is kind of a case study in the problem with algorithmic decision-making. There, there are two levels to this. One is that they have such a volume and scale problem that they can't have humans making these content moderation decisions all the time. And so for years, what you've heard the, the tech companies say is we're going to improve our machine learning. You know, we're going to throw more computer resources and more accurate algorithms at this to solve the problem. The problem with that approach is that it implies that there is a correct decision that most people would recognize as being a correct decision in any given case. And the problem is just scaling that to get the computers to approach and be able to approximate that accurate decision most of the time. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the problem is. And you can see that in the case of the president's tweets, right? They just recently rolled out this new thing where they're attaching fact-checking labels to his crazier tweets and offering some explanation for how he you know, may have violated their policies, but they have a sort of exception for public figures, but sometimes they don't have an exception. And really what it seems like they are trying to do here is to avoid having to make a decision for which their leadership would be accountable and instead point to process considerations and say, look, we have a process here. We're following the neutral criterion of our process and we just applied them in this case. I think anybody knows looking at this that that's not the case. They, they are stuck in a bad position they don't want to have to make a decision. And so they made a halfway decision and then used the process criteria or the explanation as a rationale for their decisions. And so what they're avoiding having, what they're avoiding doing is just making a judgment and having somebody be accountable by, for it by saying, I think this is what needs to happen. And I'm the one who decided this, not the criteria and, and not the process. And I think you see that throughout the platform, that the reason that the moderation policies don't work well is not that the criteria they're using are bad necessarily. It's that there isn't a person who is really making them and that they're being made on a scale where they really can't gain the assent of everybody on the platform. And I think that's that kind of state of affairs is what would be really worrisome if it started pervading the rest of government, which is you have such a scale problem that you begin removing people from direct interaction with somebody who's actually making a decision, handing that over to algorithms and being able to claim some greater state of fairness, but actually just degrading the legitimacy of the entire process. I think that I might have misunderstood your example about Twitter. I mean, there, I think it really was a human that intervened in the end and probably was very accountable, the head of, of Twitter in deciding to ultimately flag the president. But, but I, I think the point you're making is, is a great one, that even with algorithmic governance, and this is, I think, a really good point that... The, the report makes, even with algorithmic governance, there will be value judgments that have to be made in establishing those criteria. And somebody has to be accountable for making those value judgments and for designing the algorithms. There's a great case study that Ellen Goodman, a uh, legal scholar, Ellen Goodman has published in the regulatory review on the rollout of an algorithmically driven reform to school bus schedules in the city of Boston. Now, this may seem like a fairly banal setting in which to be applying algorithmic decision-making, but it turns out that parents and school kids themselves care an awful lot about what time they get picked up by the school bus. And the city planners uh, and the designers of a, of a new uh, schedule for school buses optimize to reduce the distance that buses would have to travel and, and shorten travel time. But 
it turns out that there were other values at stake. I think the the real limitations when it comes to using algorithmic tools in the governmental setting are twofold. One is getting all the values right, what I call value completeness. And then the second is being able to define those values in a precise way and to specify the trade-offs that should be made uh, across different values. And those are things that the democratic process works out, sometimes imprecisely, sometimes through what Cass Sunstein has called incompletely theorized agreements. We can get a democratic process to agree that people who have disabilities should have reasonable accommodations, but we never really specify exactly what a reasonable accommodation is. Algorithms are going to need a much more precision than that to work. And we're going to need a democratic process, I think robust democratic process, to divine values, to ensure we have all the values and that the trade-offs are specified if we're going to use algorithmic tools completely. In Boston, they tried that without a robust democratic stakeholder engagement kind of process, and at the end of the day had to abandon essentially the, the use of the algorithmic tools because there was so much public opposition to the, to the optimized system. Now, once we optimize the system and we've, we've made the value judgments, no matter how deliberately and well we've made them, then there still is the question about the facts upon which the decisions we made. This gets back to the point of, of data, which Malika um, raised uh, at the outset of the conversation. So before we, we conclude, I do want to bring us back to that for this question about data. Here in Washington, D.C., I know there's been a lot of discussion over the last few years among policymakers and others, groups like the Data Coalition, thinking through the need to improve just data, both in the substance and the, and the form that it's collected and presented to decision makers. Malika, how should we think about data in all of this? It's very systemic and individual at the same time. Every agency oversees broad, broad decision making every single day, and there's a lot of data points to go into that. And they are all host to different data sets and often don't want to share. So I think there has to be broader reform and readjusting of how governments use technology and set up data systems and infrastructure to facilitate the collection and the flow of data, even across agencies. That probably is like another podcast within itself, but I think it really requires a shifting of bureaucracy to hold themselves accountable and recognize where there are gaps in data and best practices. That's going to be an uphill battle. You know, bureaucratic institutions can often be difficult to work with when it comes to adjusting traditional ways of doing things, but it would be well worth it to make a step in the direction towards more algorithmic decision-making or even just better decision-making, algorithm or not. We could have a whole other podcast about that. Maybe someday we will. But for now, I suppose we ought to bring this conversation to a close. I want to say again, Thank you very, very much to our three guests, Carrie Kalanis, Malika Momond, and Ari Shulman. Thanks to our listeners. And just a reminder that, again, anybody who's been listening to this who has any thoughts, comments, questions, please send them to me. I'm uh, at adam.white at aei.org. That's adam.white at aei.org. I'll share them with the uh, authors of this report, Andrew Briggs and Dominic Burbage, for some comments in the last episode of this podcast. And again, this is the third of four. The last episode coming after this will be our closing conversation, Professor Briggs and Dr. Burbage. So we'll look forward to that. But thanks again for joining us. 
Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.